Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Roger Baker. Roger is the executive director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. For more than 20 years, Roger has guided the company's analytical process and is one of the world's leading experts on North Korea, having dedicated extended periods of time living and working in and around the Korean Peninsula. Roger's core emphasis is the multidisciplinary approach to geopolitics and the evolution of international relations to develop mid- and long-term forecasts to assist companies, governments, and other globally engaged organizations in making informed decisions. Roger, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for having me, Fred. I've really been looking forward to this, Roger. Tell us a little bit about your center. Well, the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics um, is really designed to put some structure around the concept of geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Although the field has been around for a very long time, there's not a lot of consistency. Um, And as we're seeing more and more uh, companies and organizations and and governments and, and educational institutions interested in geopolitical analysis, uh, there there seems to be a need for some structure and professionalization of the field. And so one of the things that the center is going to do is really work towards um, codifying certain types of methodology um, and being able to see how we can improve that, work with other organizations to, to increase the, the reliability of geopolitical intelligence, geopolitical analysis, and give, give companies more confidence uh, when they bring people in to assist them in this sort of analysis work. Yeah, that's really amazing, Roger. And I know this is something that uh, you are quite good at when it comes to teaching analysis. Uh, when you look at uh, your certificate program that uh, you have created, Walk us through how you did that and and talk a little bit about the classes. So we have a a certificate program in geopolitical analysis uh, that we work jointly with Florida Atlantic University on. Um, And it's a a three-day, eight-hour-a-day, pretty intense, um, uh, uh, short short program. Um, And the purpose is to give people an introduction to thinking geopolitically. And we really focus on a couple of key areas. We focus on uh, the basics of geopolitics and helping people to really integrate that multidisciplinary approach, right? Effectively utilizing history, geography, um, and weaving together things like politics, economics, security, society into an inclusive image that helps them put events in context and start to see forward. 
And then we also do uh, a lot of work on uh, scenario building, building out of these geopolitical frameworks. So most of our time is spent looking at, at geographic assessments of either individual countries or regions and trying to see how we can use these tools to both rapidly learn a space and help us better understand the way in which decisions are being made um, and how the impacts are likely to play out from decisions that are being made. Because as you know, and as I know, uh, not every decision is made in a purely uh, analytical fashion. Uh, politics has its own particular uh, uh, rules. Um, uh, people are people. There are emotions. There are different experiences that are going to create different decision-making trees. And using these types of geopolitical analytic tools, ideally, even if we can't predict the decision that's made, we can understand the impact and think forward of the implications of those decisions. Now, are your students mostly analysts that are working for your Fortune 1000s, or do you have a hybrid mix? So, so this program is really designed uh, primarily for people in industry. Uh, it's usually a pretty wide mix of different geographies, different industries, um, and even elements within organizations. Um, but it's people looking to add that geopolitical lens to the component that they work on, whether it's supply chain, whether it's um, uh, research, whether it is um, uh, mergers and acquisitions, um, up in the C-suite, uh, even at times um, uh, cybersecurity, uh, corporate intelligence, um, corporate security spaces, things of that sort. And then occasionally we'll have people in who are who are students um, looking to expand their capabilities before they go into business, or even people from governments, uh, militaries, and frequently people from non-governmental organizations who need to understand the complexities of an international system. Now, Roger, I know that you and I have talked about this for years uh, when you start looking at uh, bridging the gap between strategic intelligence and tactical intelligence and I know that's something that Rain does a tremendous job of, and uh, a large measure of that credit certainly rests on your shoulders, having been uh, one of the founding members of the original Stratfor. As you look out over the horizon, Roger, do you see a growth in geopolitical analytical positions in corporate America? I really do. And the, 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 the question is, where will it fit within organizations? I think that the, the business schools and businesses have not yet figured out where geopolitical analysis, that broader strategic outlook, goes within companies. Traditionally, it would be in the C-suite, um, but usually from a single individual who is particularly interested. And so it was very personality dependent uh, within organizations. Um, the initial push that we saw was that it was being shoved into corporate security. And right. it was a big, you know, as you know, it's a big adjustment for corporate security, which has, you know, well, well, technically they're thinking long term and they're thinking strategically. Their day to day uh, remit is is very short term often, very tactical, very uh, localized um, and and ideally proactive, but frequently responsive. 
And it's been a big adjustment there. We're seeing also that it's moving into the the people in charge of supply chain and supply chain management. Um, and and obviously it comes up in in corporate strategic planning. But the challenge is that most corporations strategic planning is not a a everyday task. It's a once a year, once every two years task up and disappears, up and disappears. But I think as we see the world shift to a multipolar world, that we anticipate more conflict, more economic competition between nations, the expectations of global norms and rules and trade agreements staying static and being predictable, I think is, is clearly fading. And so this ability to read changes um, on that grander scale moving forward is going to be more and more important for corporations and um, non-government organizations. You know, Roger, you raise a fascinating point. And what I've seen in just talking to various protective intelligence analysts and chief security officers over the past, let's say, 18 months or so, the pandemic really has placed a renewed focus in trying to understand the world. And I've seen a lot of companies actually stand up strategic intelligence units specifically to be able to, at least as best they can, forecast what's on the horizon. Yeah, and I think I think there's a it, it's a smart move to put a, a strategic unit within an organization rather than try to shove the strategic feature into some other component of the company. The the it allows the strategic analysts to look not only at the immediate needs of the organization, but to try to understand the broader landscape. And sometimes you need to step back from your direct consumer to understand that landscape and then bring it back to apply. Um, where where the, the real value will come, though, is the ability of that strategic unit to work collaboratively and integratively with the other units of the company, whether it's in the the corporate security, the tactical security component, whether it's in the M&A component, whether it's in supply chain, whether it's in strategic planning, and to create effective information flows within the company so that uh, that strategic unit can understand the, the, not only the needs, but the perceptions of the different units. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Ontech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontech Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.co slash center. That's ontech.co slash center. Roger, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Uh, I would be highly remiss uh, for our audience not to know, for those of who may not know, that you are uh, clearly one of the uh, best China and North Korea watchers uh, in the world when it comes to geopolitics and have actually been to North Korea 
So what do you see unfolding with uh, the South China Sea? So if we, if we go down to the South China Sea, um, we, we saw a, over the last few years, in some ways, a pause by China in its, in its sort of confrontational activity within the South China Sea. Part of that, I think, was driven by uh, COVID and the extent of COVID. Part of that was driven by the Chinese government recognizing that at a certain point, their more, depending upon who you ask, assertive or aggressive behavior was starting to backfire. That they saw this particularly in Europe. They were very concerned about this in the Asia Pacific. Um, and they've seen this real shifting of focus uh, in the security space and starting to be in the economic space by the United States and many of its partners, both in the Indo-Pacific region and in uh, Europe, to, to be more active or, or counteractive to the Chinese in that region. Um, but the big part of the South China Sea, if we think about it, there's probably two or three main drivers for what the Chinese are doing. One of the early drivers was access to resources and primarily um, access to fish. Uh, it wasn't about oil and gas um, offshore. It was about food and food security. The Chinese outfished their own domestic um, local waters, uh, and as did many of the, the countries around the South China Sea, overfished within their territorial waters, and they all started pushing towards that center space. Um, that overlapped with uh, the UNCLOS um, coming into effect and everybody now declaring their territorial waters much further than what traditionally would have been seen. So in places that used to just be middle ground, suddenly it was claimed territory. And that flared up a lot of the tensions that we saw in the South China Sea. Um, another strategic piece of this is uh, deterrence of the United States. And as the Chinese look at um, their strategic position, right, China is now dependent upon global trade. Most of that trade is through maritime space. That maritime space is largely enclosed by U.S. partners and allies. You know, you wrap around Korea, Japan, the Philippines, um, Singapore, Thailand, increasingly Indonesia, Malaysia. Push down further, you've got Australia. The Chinese coastline is boxed in. And by China pushing out in the South China Sea, it's basically uh, asserting a Monroe Doctrine for China, right? Nobody else should mess in my interior waters because those are critical to my international global supply chains, my supply lines, and I must protect and preserve those. And so these buildups on the islands, the increase of their naval capacity, the increase of the, you know, their anti-ship missiles, um, the hypersonics that they're working on, these are all about pushing the United States further back or increasing the cost for U.S. intervention within the region. Ideally, from the Chinese perspective, then, that starts to shape political realities within the region, right? If China is, by default, the, the military hegemon and the one, the guarantor of maritime security and maritime safety, then the other countries within the region effectively have to maintain close political ties with China and not oppose China on other activities. And finally, a lot of it is with an eye, if you take those, that dynamic, and apply it down focus to Taiwan, it's with an eye on Taiwan. How does China ultimately convince Taiwan that China has the capacity to invade, and if they invaded, the United States would be unwilling or unable to defend Taiwan, and therefore 
force a shift in Taiwanese politics without having to go to military conflict. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, Roger, I saw yesterday uh, or recently the joint Russian and Chinese naval operations uh, in the Arctic. What do you make of that? So yeah, the, the Chinese have certainly been expanding their activity in the Arctic and expanding their, their defense with the Russians. Um, not only do we see, for example, maritime activity in the Arctic, um, and some of this was in uh, you know, expanded activity with Russia's recent big um, military exercises in the Far East. We've also seen, for example, the Chinese and Russians running strategic bomber runs um, over Japan and Korea, possibly thinking about uh, if China can uh, up the range of its bombers, potentially we could start to see that move over uh, to the Alaskan coastline at some point as well. Um, but the Chinese look at the Arctic and they see the Arctic as a key part of their global trade routes, um, as a potential future place for commodities, but most importantly, as a place where China can start to assert its role in rewriting global rules. And they see the Arctic as a really unique space where right now Arctic um, uh, management is by the eight Arctic uh, countries, right? The countries that all uh, have territory within the, within the Arctic Circle. And largely, they exclude everyone else from defining what happens within the Arctic. And what China argues is, no, this is a global commons, and it's time to push back against that, that exclusive view of the Arctic and give China a stake in shaping new rules, similar to what they intend to do in the future down around Antarctica as that comes back up for renegotiation down the road. So that's a, a piece of what they're doing. And I think that there's an acceleration of that because as we see Finland and Sweden moving to join NATO, you basically have now split the Arctic between NATO and Russia. And so Russia is being sort of pushed out of any Arctic cooperation by the NATO countries. Russia's Arctic frontier is the core of its future economy, minerals, gas and oil, um, and transit routes. The Chinese want access to that. And so the Russians are, you know, finding themselves more and more needing to rely on the Chinese. The Chinese are much, uh, very interested in moving into that Arctic space and asserting themselves within the Arctic space, and in some ways actually forcing the Russians to allow the Chinese to operate without the Russians uh, in the future. Yeah, that's a wonderful lesson in current events and geopolitics, uh, Roger. Shifting gears, what are you watching? When you get up every morning now lately, what are you looking for as you scan the world and putting together analysis or getting ready for some of your briefings that you're doing? Uh, it changes a lot. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 the, part of it is watching the, the, quote, hot items, right? You have to you have to keep an eye on the dynamics in and around Ukraine these days, not just what's happening on the battlefield, but what's happening um, inside Russia, what's happening inside Europe, uh, what's happening inside the United States, um, and in Europe, thinking about the Eastern Europeans versus the Western Europeans, right? Um, uh, obviously, there's you know the, the occasional thing that pops off, right? The North Koreans in the last couple of days have popped off three missiles. Everybody's up in arms over them, two short-range missiles. Um, you know, the, no, no game changer, but the North Koreans may be finally ready for their next nuclear test. So that gets everybody worried and worked up. But really what I'm looking at is trying to understand um, 
how are small and mid-sized countries adapting to the return to a multipolar system? So I look at things like Indonesia, right? Here's Indonesia sitting at the crossroads of the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea. It, it really is in a key location. It's, it's got a large population, a large economy. And Indonesia took it upon itself to play a role, a proactive role, in ultimately what became the um, resolution to allow grain from Ukraine to go to the international markets, right? Um, Turkey. Uh, and how Turkey is playing that intermediate role in exploiting this multipolar system to try to find advantage for itself. It's looking at those types of countries and seeing where they're moving, what are the options and opportunities for them, what are the increased risks for them, and how might that play out as we look forward? Because as people look at um, the future of investment, economic activity, things of that sort in this even only a, even if it's only a very thin partial decoupling or tension with China, there's a need to rec, uh, diversify supply chains. And a lot of these small and middle-sized countries are the ones that are best able to absorb uh, that new investment. Um, and so how do they position themselves and what's their future going to be like? Those are the things that I'm watching uh, the most, right? Um, Mongolia, to me, is is almost more interesting these days to understand the future of the world than the day-to-day battlefront in Ukraine. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. Fascinating. Roger, for those that are interested in geopolitics uh, as either a field of study or to learn more about it, are there any books that you would recommend? So I, I, I always throw out the, the, the first reading I would recommend to anybody is uh, Halford McKinder's Democratic Ideals and Reality. And that's the book that he wrote at the close of World War I. And in it, you really get an interesting insight into um, the field of modern geopolitics. Uh, McKinder never calls it geopolitics. He doesn't like the word. He doesn't like how geopolitic was uh, absconded by the Germans and used in deterministic ways. But if you really look at that book, you see this, this synthesis that emerges where Mackinder uses economic analysis and social analysis and historical analysis and geographic analysis and technological analysis, and he weaves them together to um, try to understand the past, explain the present, and look to the future. And so that's always the one I tell people to start. There's lots of other readings, I think, that are valuable. To me, my recommendation is always um, mix it up a lot, right? Read, read something on history um, or, or area studies. Read something related to technology and read fiction, whether it's science fiction, whether it's um, uh, national fiction from different countries. And constantly rotate between the three, or if you're if you're like me, just read all three at the same time, <laughs> um, because you know I'm I'm from the old days where I wouldn't get confused watching Magnum PI and Murder She Wrote in the same week, and <laughs> and not having to binge seven episodes in a row to figure out what's going on. So so moving between them also helps you create new connections. And so to me, it's take something in science and technology, something in in history slash politics slash geopolitics and something in fiction or science fiction and just keep rotating through all of those all the time. Roger, that's very sound advice. Uh, Some of our listeners, though, will have to Google Magnum (laughs) P.I. No, it got remade, right? (laughs) 
I'm a fan of the original. Uh, Roger Baker is the executive director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. Roger, really appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Fred. It was uh, it was great to talk with you. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.